Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. And I'm just going to tell you right up front that in the first part of this story, pretty much nothing is what it appears to be. The story starts with an immigrant who wanted better health care in the U.S., a man named Michael Shadid. And if you've got a set of assumptions about Shadid at this point, they're probably wrong. So, you know, he's kind of this revolutionary, right? And both literally and figuratively, he is sort of trying to, I think in today's language, we would say he was trying to be a disruptor. Jonathan Cohn is the author of the book Sick, the untold story of America's healthcare crisis and the people who pay the price. I mean, he was trying to shake up the way that the medical establishment works. Well, the medical establishment doesn't like that in particular. And he went through all kinds of fights. There were fights over licensing. The state medical association tried to get a bill passed outlawing the kind of practice that he wanted to establish. And basically, it was a microcosm of what would happen in the country at large in the coming decades. So a few things to know about Michael Shadid. He was a doctor. He had immigrated from Lebanon. He went to medical school at Washington University in St. Louis and then did very well working in a medical practice. But something inside him was restless. He had a bigger vision. So he moved to Elk City, Oklahoma, to try to provide medical care, largely for farmers. And it became apparent to him, at least, that the American healthcare system was a mess. Rural patients seemed to be relying on patchwork services that often left them without coverage. So he created a cooperative clinic and hospital, which proved immensely popular with patients. You know, we think today of of the way healthcare uh, healthcare works in general where you have a sort of doctors who get paid for this specialty or that specialty and they get paid for every procedure and that's a big part of why our system has all the problems it does. Shadid, he had the idea that, you know, what if what if we could sort of take care of the whole patient at once and we can kind of, you know, as doctors as providers, we could be sort of stewards of the health of the people in our charge. And almost, it's almost a more holistic approach uh, to how to take care of people medically, to promote good health as well as to sort of take care of problems as they come up. And that was a kind of a different model for how to organize medical care, and one that I think he thought was a, something that we could see in the future as the dominant method in this country. And I think along the way, lots of people have seized on that model, but of course, it's not the dominant model today, and, and arguably, we are worse off for it. Shadid had a vision of what could be invented in America, a healthcare system that would change the country. And it was a vision he had almost 100 years ago now, in the 1920s. In some ways, it seemed like a clear winner. There were actually hundreds of these groups around the country. Another popular one was the Ross Luce Plan in Los Angeles. And during the Great Depression, they grew so quickly. They soon had, you know, 50,000 patients, an ambulatory surgery center, um, their own lab and library. Christy Ford Chapin is an associate professor of history at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And physicians liked practicing this way because it was, it was holistic practice. It was also multi-specialty. So physicians got to work with people and with, with other physicians in different specialties, which was particularly important with holistic care when they're trying to figure out what is wrong with somebody or if somebody has a number of different diagnoses or conditions. You need all the physicians to come together and discuss their case and the best way to take care of them. So it, was, it provided great care. 
Chapin also notes that the Shadid approach was remarkably good at keeping costs in check. There were no insurance middlemen, so you paid doctors and practices directly. The Oklahoma Farmers Union and others embraced the idea. Tens of thousands of people joined these cooperatives. And Shadid's professional life promptly started to fall apart. He was cast out of the medical society in his county. His Oklahoma medical license suddenly seemed to be on the rocks. And the medical breakthrough that Shadid had just introduced was in big trouble. Everybody liked it except for the leaders of the American Medical Association. Rank-and-file physicians liked it, but during this period, let's say the beginning of the 20th century through the 1950s and 60s, the AMA had a lot of control over state licensing boards. They also had a lot more power over hospitals than they do today. So any physicians who transgressed their rules about not being a part of these prepaid doctor groups, they would have their licenses threatened, their hospital admitting privileges revoked, and the AMA was very explicit about warning them not to become involved in these groups or they would go after them. Even in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is a very prestigious medical journal, they're making these warnings and, and telling physicians that will come after you and ruin your career. Needless to say, the system Shadid wanted to invent ended up fading away. As he grew older, he spoke in Europe and Russia about the idea of cooperative health care. He ran for Congress but lost. He had his legs amputated because of diabetes. And then when he was closing in on 80, he helped construct a hospital in the Lebanese town he had come from. Meanwhile, in the U.S., another innovative approach to health care was taking shape, an approach that caught on. And this was an approach so unique and so complex that no other country in the world developed it. It is the American healthcare system that you know, and you might love it or you might not. I would describe it as a mixture of public and private power. I call it the insurance company model because it's a model that AMA leaders, American Medical Association leaders, invented. They pretty much pulled it out of thin air in the 1930s, and it's required insurance companies and physicians, but also a good deal of interventions from the, the public sector in order to grow. Christy Ford Chapin has written about America's standalone approach to medicine in the book Insuring America's Health, the public creation of the corporate healthcare system. And you might be asking yourself, why did the American Medical Association invent our medical system? Why did they even care? It turns out that the AMA has shaped U.S. history more than most of us ever realized. If they hadn't gotten heavily involved in inventing our current approach to health care in the 1930s, an approach which puts an insurance company between a doctor and a patient, the New Deal might have been different, as well as Truman's quest for universal health care. Lyndon Johnson might never have had a fight over Medicare. Hillary Clinton would never have become infamous for trying to reform health care during her husband's presidency. There would have been no Affordable Care Act with cries of death panels and no efforts to repeal the ACA during the Trump presidency. So back to that question of why the AMA came out full force against folks like Michael Shadid. Chapin says there are two main reasons. First of all, they were looking at Europe 
and other countries, particularly England and Germany, that had already developed or adopted some type of government financing for their health care. And in those countries, you already had a well-developed system of friendly societies, mutual aid societies, unions running uh, health care plans. And so AMA leaders looked at that and thought that more organization in the private sector only paved the way for government intervention. The second reason they were so opposed to them was because this was a period where you have the rise of the large corporation in the United States, these private bureaucracies with a lot of power. And so there is fear amongst many professionals, including the physicians, that they're going to be brought in to these large corporations, um, be made part of these bureaucracies and supervised by lay people. Okay. So, John, I wonder, Christy touched on this a little bit, but in the early part of the 20th century, there are, even in the U.S., um, a lot of these kind of like mutual aid societies amongst African Americans, amongst the Irish, uh, the Italians, you know, people who are sort of forming these societies so that if somebody got sick, other people, people would pool their money and help them. Um, I wonder what if you think there was any impact uh, on the way that our healthcare system developed, you know, from the fact that we're a much more diverse country than a lot of the, you know, countries in, you know, Europe or uh, Japan ended up coming up with a universal healthcare plan. Does it matter that people would be helping people who were different from them? Yeah, I, I actually think that's a good point. I mean, there's actually a fair amount of scholarship on this point, and it's not all People disagree to some extent, but as a general rule, when we think about healthcare, you know, what 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 is the sort of math of healthcare look like? What when we talk about taking care of people? I mean, it's always a kind of a, arrangement among people, to kind of enter in a mutually protective system where everybody says, "Look, anybody can get sick, anybody can get injured." Today it may not be me, tomorrow it might be, or if it's not me, it's my child, it's my spouse, it's my neighbor. So it's worthwhile to me to do this. It's worthwhile to me to pay into this system somehow. Right. And all of us pay into this system, you know, for the promise that when we need it, that money will be there to take care of us, right? That's the essence of any health insurance arrangement. In countries where everybody looks like everybody else, where there's a sort of natural sense of solidarity, that's going to be an easier sell, right? Because in a country where people don't look like everybody doesn't look alike, and it is a more diverse country, it is sometimes a harder sell because people fundamentally are less likely to identify with other people. And, you know, there's a sort of dark version of this, uh, which gets into sort of, you know, racial issues. And we see that in our politics to this day, where there is a resistance to have government programs. When people say, well, wait a minute, I don't want to pay into this program because it's going to take care of those people who don't look like mm-hmm. me. And, you know, going back historically to health insurance arrangements, um, we are a more diverse country. And there's a, you know, I do think it's quite possible that one reason we've had a harder time constructing a national health insurance system is that that diversity sometimes works at cross purposes with it. Hmm. John, I mean, when you hear, and I think when a lot of people who haven't studied this hear the role that the American Medical Association plays, like, I think of the American Medical Association as, you know, some umbrella group for doctors. I don't think of it as a major political player. I don't think of it as having a a sort of big agenda in terms of, you know, thinking about socialism versus, uh, you know, capitalism. 
is it is it in some ways shocking the power that the American Medical Association has exerted over the healthcare system for a hundred years or more? Yeah, I mean it's been it's been a huge influence. You know, you go back to again to stay in the 1930s for a moment. Um, I always tell people that the sort of key inflection point I think where we get sort of set on this road that we've been on ever since you know, is the 1930s. And at this point, we are starting to see the Blue Cross plans pop up. And that's a really important part of the story itself. But, you know, Roosevelt is, is president. They're, they're, you know, they're, 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 they're building the New Deal. And they're, they're constructing the Social Security Act. And there's a lot of talk about adding health insurance. It seems like an obvious one. Like if you're saying we're going to have Social Security, we're going to, you know, give people jobs through all these federally funded programs. We're, you know, we're going to do, we're going to really increase the safety net. Healthcare seems like sure, throw it in there. I, you know, you you might expect that to be part of the New Deal. Yeah, you might, and and certainly back then it was a lot less expensive than it would be today. And so there was there was a lot of discussion of it. It was very actively considered. And, and the, the story of exactly why it didn't get included in the Social Security Act, different historians tell it different ways. But a factor, an important factor, uh, was the fact that there was fear that it would arouse opposition from medical societies, state medical societies, the national, and that that opposition would be so powerful that it would jeopardize the rest of the law. And that was just thought to be too much of a political risk. And as you go forward, every single time there's a big, you know, a kind of big effort at healthcare reform, you see the medical profession rising up against it. Um, probably most famously when Truman tries it. I mean, they really went all out on that. Um, they fought Medicare. I will say that recently, the last 10, 20, 30 years, the medical lobby does seem to be changing a little bit. Um, there's some signs that you know it's become more diverse. It's less monolithic. You certainly can find there are many physicians out there who are gung-ho for, you know, Medicare for all. So, I mean, it's not like they speak with one voice anymore. But historically, the medical profession has been an impediment to health care reform. And, and would you say that uh, what was going on there at, at very, very base was protecting the salaries of physicians? Yeah. I mean, you know, to be fair, I think, you know, if you talk to physicians, they would say this is about me being able to do what's best for my patients. I need autonomy. I don't need the government telling me what to do. But, you know, uh, uh, a lot of it is income, frankly. And um, mm-hmm. you say, look, you know, government's going to squeeze what are our incomes. And, you know, to be fair to the medical profession, you know, again, if, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to doctors about this and they will tell you, well, look, this is all the money I had to take out and borrow to go to medical school. And these are my malpractice liabilities, which, by the way, physicians overseas don't have to deal with. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's like everything. It's a little bit complicated. But, yes, income's a huge part of it. Um, Christy, you've written, this is a quote, the problem with American health care is not the care, it's the insurance. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, as, as Jonathan said earlier, some people have who have good insurance, they have great medical care. And that's actually going to be a political problem with some of the Medi- Medicare for all proposals is that people who have good insurance don't want to give that up for an untried program. Um, But then, of course, you have if you're not in that system, it's really bad for you. So then hopefully you're on Medicaid. But if you make a little bit too much money and you don't qualify for that, it's it's very difficult to get into a system where the costs are so high. And, And just as a reminder to your audience, 
with us spending 18 to 19% of our GDP on healthcare services, we're not just the highest spenders in the world. It's if you look at the second place spenders, they're back at 11 12 percent of their GDP. Mm-hmm. So the cost to participate in this system, they're just prohibitive if you don't have good insurance. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here. I will be back with Christy Ford Chapin, author of Insuring America's Health, the Public Creation of the Corporate Healthcare System, and Jonathan Cohn, author of Sick, the Untold Story of America's Healthcare Crisis and the People Who Pay the Price. When we return, America's strange new healthcare system gets traction and pretty effectively steamrolls every president in its path. We've got lots more about the invention of American healthcare on our website, innovationhub.org, including more about Michael Shadid, the Lebanese immigrant who established cooperative medical care in Oklahoma. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. One of my favorite political anecdotes comes from the actor Charlton Heston. And if you know me, you've probably heard the story a couple of times. The truth of it is actually in some doubt, but Heston himself certainly told it over and over. Anyway, here's the background. Heston was an A-list celebrity in the 1950s and 60s who you might have seen playing Moses in the 1956 movie, The Ten Commandments. God has set before you this day his laws of life and good and death and evil. Those who will not live by the law shall die by the law. Well, all through the 1950s, Heston was a staunch Democrat. He was at the 1960 Democratic Convention, where John F. Kennedy got the nomination. Then, as Heston used to tell the story, a few years later, when Lyndon Johnson was running for president, Heston was driving to a film set in a little town outside Sacramento, and there was this billboard on the road that caught his eye. It was a billboard for Johnson's 1964 opponent, Barry Goldwater. And the billboard said of Goldwater, in your heart, you know he's right. Well, as Heston looked at it, he realized that in his heart, he did believe Goldwater was right, which started Heston down a long path of becoming a staunch Hollywood conservative. Most movie stars, of course, weren't conservative. But in the early 1960s, there was a small, rising chorus of right-leaning actors who would, increasingly, use their soapbox to influence the national dialogue. I have spent most of my life as a Democrat. I recently have seen fit to follow another course. I believe that the issues confronting us cross party lines. That was actor Ronald Reagan endorsing Goldwater in the 1964 election, though Goldwater would soon get creamed by Johnson. We'll get back to Hollywood conservatives in a couple of minutes, but when Johnson got elected, he almost immediately caused a political earthquake by proposing a change in America's healthcare system, a system that is still, to this day, unique to America, a system invented in the 1930s that, as it happens, is also uniquely expensive. What's happening is it's it's pretty obvious that they cannot, with this very expensive model, cover the elderly for obvious reasons. 
Christy Ford Chapin is a professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, who has studied the history of healthcare in America. They do try. They, they, they make enormous strides and do uh, very radical experiments in trying to cover the elderly, where you have them, for example, the insurers lobbying state legislatures to give them an antitrust exemption so they can pool their administrative and financial resources in order to cover the elderly. But even then, they can only give them hospital insurance you know, only pay maybe 60 to 80 percent of those costs. And so what happens is you have politicians saying, look, we gave you a chance. You're not covering the elderly to an acceptable degree. And so it's not even just Democrats. You have the, the Kennedy-Johnson administration's bill. But even all the Republicans, they have alternative bills that they they hope will keep the program slimmer in order to create a program that they think would be more difficult to turn into a universal system. But at the same time, I would say at least 85 to 90 percent of uh, people in Congress at that point were backing some type of program to provide health care coverage for the elderly. There was, by the 1950s and 60s, a crisis in American health care. The American Medical Association, the AMA, insurance companies, others, they had created this system unlike anything in the rest of the world. But lots of people were left out. President Kennedy had tried to expand coverage during his presidency, but he ran into the same old roadblocks that Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman had run into before him. First, we read that the AMA is against it, and they're entitled to be against it. That's JFK speaking at Madison Square Garden in 1962. This is not a campaign against doctors because doctors have joined with us. This is a campaign to help people meet their responsibility. When Kennedy ran on it in 1960, he could not get it out of committee. Frankly, if it wasn't for the landslide victory of 1964, which gave Johnson overwhelming Democratic majorities in Congress, it's not clear that he could have gotten it out. But, you know, he had those majorities. The pressure had built up. They'd been working towards this for years, and they were able to get it thrown. Even then, they had to compromise, among other things, by, you know, not going too hard on the hospitals and, and, you know, not introducing uh, too much cost control. That was part of the deal. Jonathan Cohn, author of the book Sick, which looks at the state of American health care, says that FDR and Truman's failed efforts to broaden health care had taught Democrats a lesson. Move slowly. And the people who worked on that and the people who studied it said, OK, we, you know, we're not we're not able to get, you know, we're, it doesn't look like we can get right to a universal health care system. So what, what, what can we get? How do we get there in steps? What's an easy way to do that? Uh, what's a politically viable way to do that? And coverage for the elderly made sense uh, politically for the reason it made sense as policy, which is that you had a group of people who were clearly in need, clearly were not able to pay for their medical care. And and as you would expect, right, because by this point, the dominant source of coverage, you know, private insurance is through employment. Well, you know, if you're elderly, you're retired and chances are you don't have insurance. And they were a sympathetic group. Families understood what a burden it was, frankly, because, you know, the working age adults, it was, you know, they ended up having to pay for their parents and, you know, grandparents' care. The thinking, Cohn says, was, Okay, let's see if we can cover the elderly, and then if we can, we'll expand this thing out piece by piece. Except that even getting Medicare passed was a nightmare for Lyndon Johnson, 
As you can tell in this phone call, where the president is essentially freaking out about losing the support of Georgia Senator Dick Russell, a conservative Democrat, who didn't want to spend too much money on health care. My health program yesterday runs $300 million. But the fools had to go to projecting it down the road five or six years. And when you project it the first year, it runs $900 million. But the first thing Dick Russell comes running in and say, my God, you've got a billion-dollar program for next year on health, therefore I'm against any of it now. And the concern of conservatives, both Republicans and Democrats, was not just that expanded health care would be expensive, but that in moving towards universal health care, America would be losing some of its essence. Write those letters now, call your friends, and tell them to write them. If you don't, this program, I promise you, will pass just as surely as the sun will come up tomorrow. Ronald Reagan, who was firmly ensconced in that small group of powerful Hollywood conservatives, he was refining his ideas in the 1960s. And he used his celebrity and considerable public speaking ability, just as Charlton Heston would do later as president of the National Rifle Association, to articulate his views to the public. And behind it will come other federal programs that will invade every area of freedom as we have known it in this country. Until, one day, as Norman Thomas said, we will awake to find that we have socialism. And if you don't do this, and if I don't do it, one of these days, you and I are going to spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. Jonathan Cohn says, in some sense, the core issues that Reagan spoke about nearly 60 years ago are the ones we're still fighting over today. It's always the same argument. It's always that, you know, this will be socialism. You know, this is anti-capitalist. Uh, it will end the free market. It will end freedom. There's been an, a recurring theme, and you hear it today from opponents, not just of Medicare for all, but even much more modest reforms. We heard that argument against the Affordable Care Act in 2009 and 2010. It's a recurring theme, and it's often been very effective. Um, something else, you know, you pick up there, I, I, you, I don't know if you noticed the word invade. Hmm. Uh, I'm sure that was a deliberate choice. Frequently throughout the history, in, in the earlier parts of the 20th century, opponents of health care reform, universal health care, would raise the specter of it being a foreign idea, whether it was the Germans or later in the Cold War, it was, it was communism. Um, but of course, the irony is today, you know, it, good luck trying to change Medicare. Um, Medicare is a beloved program. The guarantee it provides is considered sacrosanct. Those who would, who would change the program, who would privatize it, who arguably would undermine it, even they, you know, they pay lip service to, we're going to save Medicare. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me that this uh, program that was considered so radical and such a departure and that was attacked so vociferously by Ronald Reagan today is considered a jewel by most Americans. Christy, can you give me a sense of when you heard the uh, the very p powerful argument put forward by by Reagan there, what you think of it, how you think of it in this in this sort of history that you've studied of this healthcare system we've created? Right. So the reason th these kinds of arguments just aren't as convincing for the electorate in the 1960s as they were in the late 40s and early 50s under Truman is because a lot of what Jonathan has said, the elderly were a very, you know, important or sympathetic group to bestow these benefits upon. And also the fact that it was much more ideologically palatable to roll out Medicare because 
at this point, the people in the Social Security Administration who were trying to create the program, they had been trying to dislodge the insurance company model for a long time, a lot of them going back to the, to, uh, the, the Truman's administration, simply because they did see how expensive it was and that it was going to cause cost problems. They were looking to things like the prepaid physician groups and even some of the, the nonprofit hospital plans. But what, uh, what I found is conversations among them saying when they were designing Medicare that in order to make it more ideologically palatable, we need to go ahead and adopt the insurance company model. It's the system that people are now accustomed to. We don't want to create a brand new government program that doesn't look like what everybody else is already using. So they, huh. they were very smart about how they sold this to the American people. So seniors wouldn't have a different program. They would have the program that other people had. It's just that the government would cover some of the costs. Right. But what this does is this system, this insurance company model that so many people have been trying to get rid of for so long, including conservatives and Republicans, trying to reform it in some way uh, to make it more efficient or less costly. What ends up happening then, and it's quite ironic because it's the opposite of what they wanted, is they end up legitimizing this model. And we've now kind of forgotten as a country that there were all these other models Hmm. out there that worked very well. So Medicare gets built on the insurance company model. Model, uh, insurers even administered the program to a large degree. And then we see something similar occur with the ACA. Um, John, most Americans today get insurance through their work. Uh, about 60% of non elderly Americans, that's how they get their insurance. What's wrong with that? Well, you know, it's a matter of opinion. Some people would say there's nothing wrong with that, that, you know, employer insurance works well for people who have it. You know, the most obvious problem is that. Lots of people can't get insurance through their jobs. Either their employer doesn't offer insurance or the insurance available through their employer is too expensive. A secondary problem is that it's not consistent. We have a lot of churn in this country. People change insurance plan from year to year. Um, that can be true if you stay in the same job and your in- employer or your benefits office, they change who is administering the plan can definitely change. Obviously, if you switch jobs, you become unemployed. And in general, discontinuity in healthcare is not ideal, you know, especially if it means you have to change providers. You know, everything we know about healthcare says that the more you're in a consistent arrangement with a with a physician, with a with a group mm-hmm. practice, the nurse practitioner, whatever, the better off you're 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 going to be. And then of well, course I it, was gonna say if you've ever been in a situation where you've tried to transfer your medical records from one place to another, you know even that, which seems like, oh, that couldn't be that hard. It is often that hard. It's not easy. Oh, it's it's impossible. And, and, and you know, it's the one part of the American economy where they still use fax machines. I mean, it's, it's, it's a nightmare. And then, you know, there's the problem with private insurance that you're dealing with a private insurance bureaucracy. And that can make it difficult for people who have serious medical needs, trying to get treatment approvals, trying to get prior authorization, fighting over billing. And so uh, one of the problems with having everyone with private insurance is that you are relegating a lot of people to that system. And what, what you find is that people, you know, there's reasons why people are reluctant to change and that's complicated. And there are certainly a lot of people who are, quote, happy with their health insurance. But what you find when you dig into that is a lot of people who are, quote, happy with their health insurance actually haven't really had to use it in a sort of serious way. And hmm. people who are really have major medical problems can run into some pretty serious issues. 
Um, you've written a lot about individual people's stories, um, but I wonder if you can talk about the Rotzler family of Gilbertsville, New York. Uh, you write about the kind of coupling together and then, unfortunately, the decoupling of employers and health insurance. Yeah, yeah. So this is an example of what we were just talking about. The Rotzlers uh, lived in upstate New York. Um, he worked for a defense contractor and got laid off in a wave of, of downsizing. Now, this was before, this was some time ago, this was before the Affordable Care Act, and he lost his health insurance and, and you know, today would be eligible presumably for Medicaid or, or, or something else through the Affordable Care Act, but back then that was not available. And so he ends up without health insurance and he's, you know, finds work. This is the husband. He, he's able to find work in various, you know, part-time jobs. He does some construction. Um, but of course, none of these jobs offer health insurance benefits. And eventually he gets actually gets a job back at his old employer eventually, but he's brought on as a contractor. Right. And since he's a contractor, not a f- permanent employee, he still doesn't get health insurance. And meanwhile, in, in this case, the consequences are, are, are tragic. His wife, who's developing some kind of medical problem clearly, but you know she doesn't want to get an exam yet because it's going to be expensive. And, and he always seems to be on the cusp of getting some kind of permanent job that would have insurance. And people, you know, people do this all the time, right? They sort of they 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 maneuver their lives around their insurance arrangements. So she's waiting, she's waiting, she's waiting. Eventually, she can't wait any longer. She she finds a clinic that will give her a free exam. Turns out she has advanced cancer. Um, she ends up passing away. Now you know who's to say whether she would have lived or died uh, if she had gotten the medical care earlier. But you know, at the very least, it seems quite likely that she would have been in more comfort for a while. That she would have gotten more uh, treatment. And 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 the real, you know, meanwhile, when this is all done, they're stuck with all these medical bills um, from you know her cancer treatment, and they actually have to declare bankruptcy. Hmm. Um, let's take our last break here. Uh, we're going to come back for our final few minutes to talk about where healthcare could uh, realistically go from here, and whether the plans that you're hearing about now from presidential candidates would, in practice, stand a chance. I'm talking with Jonathan Cohn, senior national correspondent at HuffPost. He's the author of Sick, the untold story of America's healthcare crisis and the people who pay the price. And Christy Ford Chapin is a professor of history at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, a visiting scholar at Johns Hopkins, and the author of Insuring America's Health. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Inventiveness can have upsides and downsides. About 80 years ago, America started down a wildly inventive path, a path towards a healthcare system unlike anything that had ever existed, a healthcare system spearheaded in large part by the American Medical Association, which involved recruiting insurance companies to act as middlemen between doctors and patients and that would soon have complex links between government and private corporations. It's a system that ate up 5% of our gross domestic product in the 1960s, but now eats up closer to 20%. And that, for states across the country, has meant shuffling money around, away from education, from public works, all sorts of other stuff, and towards healthcare. Not surprisingly, that has put our unique American system at the center of a firestorm. 
Look, the way I see this, it is hard enough to get a diagnosis that your child has cancer, to think about the changes in your family if your mom's got diabetes, or what it means for your life going forward if you've been diagnosed with MS. But what you shouldn't have to worry about is how you're going to pay for your health care after that. That was Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren talking about her idea of Medicare for all, an alternative to what we have now. And here's Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, also a presidential candidate, attacking Warren's vision for reinventing our health care. The difference between a plan and a pipe dream is something that you can actually get done. And we can get this public option done and we can take on the pharmaceutical companies and bring down the prices. Warren and Klobuchar reflect a major point of contention in the Democratic Party. Should we transition to some sort of a universal system now or create a publicly administered option, something like Medicare, that people can sign up for if they want to? But if the public option is just an option, they can also keep their private insurance. And the acknowledgement that there might be a problem with health care, it's not just something you've heard from Democrats. Everybody's got to be covered. This is an unrepublican thing for me to say, because a lot of times they say, no, no, the lower 25 percent, they can't afford private. That's President Trump speaking to Scott Pelley on 60 Minutes while he was running for president. I am going to take care of everybody. I'm, I don't care if it costs me votes or not. Everybody's going to be taken care of much better than they're taken care of now. The uninsured person? Right. Is going to be taken care of. They're going to be how? taken care of. How? I would make a deal with existing hospitals to take care of people. And you know what? This is probably... Make a deal. Who pays for it? The government's going to pay for it, but we're going to save so much money on the other side. But for the most part, it's going to be a private plan, and people are going to be able to go out and negotiate great plans with lots of different competition, with lots of competitors, with great companies, and they can have their doctors, they can have their plans, they can have everything. Not surprisingly, change did not come as easily as hoped. All Americans are not covered, and everyone does not have everything. Indeed, whether you're talking longevity or maternal mortality or lots of other metrics, the U.S.'s healthcare outcomes turn out to be decidedly middling compared to other countries, except for one metric, cost. There, we are number one. The Pew Research Center found that nearly 70 percent of Americans said in early 2019 healthcare costs should be a top priority for politicians. And it feels like a crisis may be looming. Only thing is, a crisis has been looming for about 70 years. Even in the 1950s, they were already having so many problems with overutilization and costs that uh, a lot of people don't realize that in the 1950s, we had a crisis that was reported in the press of unnecessary surgeries. That's Christy Ford Chapin, a professor of history at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County because surgeons could do a quick surgery and collect a fee from the insurance company. Many appendectomies, hysterectomies were being done that weren't necessary. And so that's when you start getting in this cat and mouse game between the insurance companies and the physicians with the insurance companies trying to monitor physicians ever more, create more rules and procedures. They don't work. But gradually, over the course of decades, this is why you see the power shift between insurance companies and physicians. Chapin says that the power of insurance companies is now tremendous. And efforts to wrest some of that power have mostly failed. 
And, you know, you get to a kind of perfect storm by the late 60s, early 70s, uh, where now most of the country has health insurance by that point. You know, roughly 90 percent is where it peaks. Jonathan Cohn is the author of the book Sick, which looks at how our healthcare system was created. And you have a lot of people getting it through the government through the newly created Medicare program, and Medicaid is coming online. Then you have a lot of people through private insurance. None of these programs are really sort of squeezing on the cost side. And so the costs just start to explode. And it's, you know, shortly after that, you see the divergence in healthcare spending between the United States and other countries. Again, these other countries with their national systems have the tools to control costs, and, and they all do it in. They're not all the same. They use different methods. But when you have one system, you can kind of get your hands around the whole cost structure. And you can either just set a budget or you can dictate what everyone's going to get. And of course, this is precisely what the AMA and the hospitals don't want to see in this country. And they succeed. But precisely because there aren't those controls here, costs explode. Which became a particular problem in the late 1980s, early 1990s, as jobs ceased to be such a reliable source of insurance coverage and a recession hit. Despite the dedication of literally millions of talented healthcare professionals, our healthcare is too uncertain and too expensive, too bureaucratic and too wasteful. It has too much fraud and too much greed. At long last, after decades of false starts, we must make this our most urgent priority, giving every American health security Health care that can never be taken away. Health care that is always there. That is what we must do tonight. A health care overhaul did not happen under the Clinton administration. It did, in some sense, come 15 years later, after Barack Obama was elected president. But even then, America's strange invention mostly stayed intact, with more rules and options built into it. Christy Ford Chapin says one of the unique aspects of American health care is how tightly it is still linked to employment, which may tell us a lot about the recent politics around the issue and what lies ahead. I think the political problem is that, that people who already have really good coverage through their work and even some of the allies that the Democrat Party would expect to have in this fight, for example, unions, that's been a problem because the unions fought for decades in order to obtain very generous health care packages. So while in some ways they're along for the fight for the ACA under Obama and also under the Clintons, they too sometimes are pulling back their support because they're fearful of losing the great health care benefits that they have won through their employer. And it's a push and pull, right? You, as you say, some unions are for it. Other unions say, gee, we bargained away that salary increase to get this health care. And now, like, that would be for nothing is what you're saying. Exactly. And that and that brings up a really good point that most people who have this great insurance through their employer, if they understood how much salary they were actually foregoing for that uh, health insurance, it would create a completely different political situation. If people could see that, oh, I'm foregoing $30,000 a year, I think I'm just paying $100 a month, but really this is the salary I'm missing. That would change the political equation, but we don't have that. 
Jonathan Cohn, uh, senior national correspondent at HuffPost. I know you've done a ton of work on President Obama and the Affordable Care Act. Um, and of course, there he is, 15 years after Bill Clinton, saying this is a huge crisis. We've got to fix it, uh, which is in some ways not so dissimilar from what Truman was saying. Uh, why didn't Obama and the Democrats go further with affordable health care? Well, you know, I think they remember that Clinton speech and what happened after it also. I mean, the story of the Affordable Care Act very much is an effort to finally kind of break through on universal health care or something close to it by learning from the mistakes of the past. And and, and right. they, they, they were extremely conscious of this. You know, a lot of the people who worked on the Affordable Care Act were veterans of the Clinton fight. In the same way that the people who constructed Medicare, many of them were veterans of the Truman fight. And they said, all right, what did we get wrong last time? Um, one of the very powerful lessons that came out of the Clinton health care fight was, if you really go to war with all the different interest groups, you're probably going to lose. Clinton ended up fighting the drug companies. The hospitals were kind of back and forth. The doctors were, I mean, they just, you know, they either, every interest group was either ambivalent or hostile. Um, there were some exceptions, but in general, they really, really had a big fight. So one of the decisions they made was, look, we're gonna, if we're going to make this work, we're going to have to try to come to some arrangement with these people. And they actually sat down, and the, the saying was, you know, at the table or on the menu, either you negotiate with us, and we'll come up with a system where, you know, we're going to, we'll expand coverage, and you know, we'll give you guys, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to make some effort to reduce what your income is, but it won't be so much that you can't live with it, and you'll make it up probably in volume. Hmm. And and basically, they made these arrangements with the different industry groups, and every industry group except the insurers ends up supporting the Affordable Care. Act. Now, some of them were quietly opposing it on the side, but, you know, at least nominally, the AMA, the hospitals, even the drug makers were in support of it. And that was a major factor in getting it through Congress. Similarly, you know, they had to make, you know, they had to deal with the hand they were dealt politically. And the fact is the way the United States Senate is structured, who was in the United States Senate, they had to make deals with a lot of very conservative Democratic senators, as well as, you know, making an effort to try to get some Republicans on board. And so, you know, they had to lean pretty hard in the direction of uh, accommodating those interests. Now, you know, for all of that, you know, it's very easy to say, well, why didn't they go farther? You know, you could look at the failures that came before it and say, it's kind of amazing they got as far as they did. I, I wonder this from both of you, but John, we can start with you. Um, we are living right now in the midst of yet another Big healthcare debate. Should we kind of retain the system we have? Should we have Medicare for all? Should we have a public option? Should we have some other kind of universal health care? I wonder what you think when we go to make any changes, if we if we do, what are the biggest obstacles to really making some kind of change in the next, you know, couple of years? Well, you know, I, I think it's the same one that they've always been. You know, any healthcare effort that involves controlling costs or even curbing costs is going to affect the healthcare industry adversely. And so either you're going to have to negotiate with them or you're going to have to overcome their resistance. There's just no two ways around that. Um, there is a general fear of change, and I think this is sort of poorly understood, which is that even people who may not be happy with their current arrangement and current health insurance system tell them you're going to change, they, they may be wary of what you're promising them. That's especially true in an era where relative to the 1960s, relative to the 1950s, people don't have a lot of faith in government right now. Mm -hmm. And those are some very big obstacles to overcome, which is not to say they can't be overcome, but they are very real impediments to reform. 
Christy, what are those biggest obstacles in your mind, and are they overcomable? I mean, is reform possible in the next couple of years? Oh, as a historian, I can hide behind my profession and say, I can't make a forecast. But I agree with uh, what Jonathan has said about the fear of change, especially if you already have good benefits. And, and even if you look at the Medicare for all proposals, the problem you see there is I think you're going to have problems uh, with elderly voters worrying that bringing a lot of other people into the system is going to make it worse for them. Mm. And we all know that the elderly vote. So that is a problem as far as getting those proposals through goes. And some other problems, I guess, me personally, I'm looking at this and, and thinking about a universal system. And the problem with Medicare is it's fine to have a small population in that, but precisely because it's built on the insurance company model, the production side is set up so that it's going to cause cost problems. Until we get that fixed, we when we introduce some kind of universal health care system, it has to be in a way that restructures the market so that costs come down. And if we roll out a universal system, uh, people don't feel like they're going to, of course, there's going to be decisions that have to be made, but people aren't as fearful about rationing. Christy Ford Chapin is an associate professor of history at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. She's also a visiting scholar at Johns Hopkins and the author of Ensuring America's Health. And Jonathan Cohn is a senior national correspondent at HuffPost. He's the author of the book, Sick, the untold story of America's healthcare crisis and the people who pay the price. Thank you so much to both of you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. And on our website, we're going to have lots more about the invention of American healthcare, from its start in the 1930s to the presidents who have tried to dislodge or change it. Plus, a look at how the American Medical Association and doctors have evolved on universal healthcare. You can find this whole segment at our website, innovationhub.org, or you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Eleanor Ho. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.